Um, so I am Christopher Mitchell. I am the maximally overcommitted internet evangelist at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And today I'm also producing this show. The strangest thing happened the other day when I was screaming at my staff for the third time is they all decided they want to stop working for me. So I'm just going to say, like, I'm really good at yelling. And if you want to work for me, there's a lot of opportunities now. Um, in reality, Ryan Marin just had better things to do. Uh, they will be back producing the next show, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. But um, we we had Joanne. And we didn't want to change the time. So even though no one who knows how to make the show work could be here, uh, we decided to plow ahead. And I think we'll all agree it's working really well. Um, so... We do not have a tower picture today, uh, Travis. I don't have a, a picture or anything. I think next time, though, we are going to start. I'm going to start taking pictures of utility poles, and you're going to start explaining uh, different pieces of that, I think, as well as wireless towers. Um, so we do have some uh, plans to to end that up. But um, as it stands, the way I'm producing this, I'm not able to, to share my screen in a useful way. So we're going to skip that part of the show. We're going to jump into the icebreaker. And this one is particularly crafted to Joanne and Doug, but I think Travis as well. And the question is, when do you plan to take your next vacation? <laughs> Doug, you didn't have any warning on this. When are you going to take a break next? Well, I didn't. I've had not had a vacation for a year and a half. So, you know, partially COVID, but also part, a whole lot of it because of workload. Um, I'm going to my daughter's college graduation in a couple of weeks, and that might be it for a while. So, yeah. Joanne, are you going to you going to take two weeks off in the <laughs> middle of the summer here? Um, I, I'm not sure I know uh, what two weeks off means, but I, <laughs> um, I I'm planning to go to Hawaii in June for a week, and um, that is all subject to change depending on uh, what the federal government chooses to do. But I'm hoping to squeeze that in after a very long COVID year before things get really intense. We'll see how that works out. You know, check back and um, ask me whether that happens or not. I will. And um, I might do it in a mean way because I'm just remembering now also you have a new employee that I was hoping to snag for um, a position that we had open. So um, we're going we'll to talk about some of this here as we go through the, the workload that we're all seeing. Uh, Travis, you going to take any breaks? Chris, you know, I don't like to brag, but I'm going to hop in my motor home and go to Iowa. So just, yeah. <laughs> Just don't tell anyone. How about you, Chris? Where are you going to head off to? Um, what is coming up next? Um, I just made some plans to um, potentially use a friend's house that is really cool as part of a wireless technician sort of crazy doer um, do-it-yourself kind of training grant. And I, I think that's going to be kind of like a vacation. Oh, um, I would ask Doug and John, does that qualify as a vacation though? I mean, <laughs> it, is it a it vacation like Hawaii or Iowa or, you know, daughter's graduation? You're going to go play with RF or what? These people that I'll be doing it with are, are very fun. So there's that. Well, RF with beer could qualify. So. Yep. I might have a date with a Miss a Chris Mitchell for chicken wings in the next few weeks. I heard a rumor yes. you were vaccinated, so you know I yep. can now be around with you again. And it's warm enough that we can we can do it outside. We can do whatever we want to do now. So I'm I'm excited. Um, I just wanted to lead into that because I feel like 
I, I'm not coming up for air. Um, I suspect that Joanne, you used to work all the time in travel and I don't know how you pulled it off. Um, Doug always seemed a little bit more chill, although accomplishing a similar amount of workload. <laughs> like, um, but this is very intimidating as we're going to talk about the money that's available through the American rescue plan and um, what's going on out there. Um, but first, we wanted to talk about a couple of things that have popped up. Uh, one is um, in Washington state, Governor Inslee is apparently um, still struggling to decide which bill to sign. There's one bill that would totally remove all the barriers to municipal networks and another bill that would partially remove it, but still allow the local providers um, or providers in local areas more accurately the ability to veto um, certain expansions for um, service from the public utility districts. And I, I don't I don't get it. Like, I'm just I'm amazed that Democrats have this issue. Um, I think we're used to thinking about this in terms of of um, of Republicans being more opposed to community networks. But even though President Obama flew across the country to Iowa to talk about how much he loved municipal networks and how much we should get rid of the barriers to them. Biden has said we should give most of the money for broadband to co-ops and to municipal networks. And yet Democratic governors are struggling with whether or not we should have barriers on them. And I'm just I'm I don't, I don't understand what's going on. So well, I, I think there's an easy answer to that, Chris, because all we have to do is look at California. California's been democratic forever and AT&T owns the state. I mean, they've won, they've won every battle they've ever wanted in the commission there. Uh, and so, you know, that's money is not partisan. So unfortunately lobbyists still have a lot to do with it. So it's gotta be a lobbyist issue in Washington state. Yeah, that's my impression. So I wanted to throw that out there because I think many of us have been starting to use the number 17 uh, in terms of the number of states that have barriers. And that assumed that we were going to get rid of all the barriers in Washington. And it is not clear that that is going to happen. So um, I salute the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Consumers Union, others that have been working to try to remove these barriers. Um, I hope that we're able to um, see them totally fall in Washington. So with that, I, I want to move on to the first piece as we're talking about federal money that's moving around. We have um, the, uh, as Travis, do you want to break the news since you were the first one to bring it up today, Travis? What's happening on May 12th? Oh, yeah. The uh, EBB program officially launches, which is I'm super excited for Joanne to explain what that actually means. So is that when we can sign people up, when we can put our reimbursement request in? Don't know. So uh, that's Honestly, that, I'm excited for this episode for that reason. So I know what to do May 12th. Uh, that, this is called the free consulting session. Yeah, exactly. See how, <laughs> how we wrap it in like this video cast? <laughs> is that a question for me? Yeah, go for it. So my understanding of the mechanics based on uh, just a quick review of what the FCC put out, and I'll clarify if I get any detail from my in-house expert on this after, but um, you can start signing people up anytime. Uh, consumers do have to opt in. You can't just transition them automatically over to the EBB from paying themselves. Uh, they have to willingly do it. And that process can happen anytime. May 12th is the date um, when the subsidy starts to kick in. So that is uh, when the FCC will start paying with these funds for uh, the, the broadband services of up to $50 per family, 75 in some cases, based on the EBB rules. And um, all of that, I think, you know, if I can share one thought on this, 
that really does concern me is that all of that is so much more easily said than done. Um, not intentionally, but this is a very burdensome program. It is going to be really hard for low-income families to participate in this program. It's going to take a lot of work on their part and a lot of proactive effort. And it's going to be hard for small ISPs to participate. It's, uh, the big ones are gonna be just fine, um, but those, the small ones are going to have much higher uh, costs and effort around it. So you know, for the communities that are engaged in this and are following it and are listening, you know, the one thing I would suggest is to the extent that you can be a mechanism and a conduit and a facilitator for the low-income members of your community to try to make this easier for them to connect with ISPs, to understand the program, to go through the process of validating their eligibility and getting the service and, um, and being protected as consumers through the process. That's a, just going to be a really important piece of this because there's a big missing piece to what the FCC has done, and that's the support for those families. I want to throw in a second warning for Travis here. I've helped a lot of companies sign up for the older Lifeline program. It's going to be a while till you get your first check out of the government. So just because the money starts on May the 12th, you might get that first check in September the 1st. So don't be shocked. And they, they will absolutely pay you. They are not going to pay you on time if they've never paid you before. That's just, they're just not quick at getting yeah, that, that going. But, but yeah, you'll, know that, you'll know that the money is coming. So, but, uh, yeah. I mean, they could shock us, but it's never been fast before. So, Joanne's point is well taken. So we've tried to really streamline the process where a potential family could just put in their information. It hits the FCC's site for validation and we get the token back and we turn them on, you know, really trying to minimize that bar. And heck, if we don't get paid for a year, that's fine. It's just, um, you know, we want to, we just want to get as many people in as we can. My worry is, what happens at the end? That's that's what I'm worried about is if we get a whole bunch of people and this thing's wildly successful, we're going to continue at least three months after the program's over with the idea that it may continue. But I don't, you know, who what what happens if it doesn't? It will literally stop in the middle of a day. Yeah. Down the line. I mean, when it's out, it's out. So, yeah. And then we have to be the bad guys to let everyone right. Right. And you're not going to know that day. They're going to tell you about it three weeks later. <laughs> this is another place where communities and states have a really important role to play because the consumer education piece of this and helping those families, particularly the ones who are new to broadband and have never subscribed before and do so because of this new program, helping those families to understand what their options are and to understand that many ISPs have products that are low cost and particularly intended for low income members of the community. Not always good products, but low cost products. I mean, there are all kinds of issues around that, but just understanding that full range of options and being able to navigate that is a consumer education and a consumer support function where we just need communities to be involved. This is not something the private sector can do by itself. I have a question for Travis then is, are you going to help families who don't really have computer skills any, in any way? I'm just curious. Well, so, so the part that was interesting in there is there was an allotment, I think for like a hundred dollars where you could get technology. And so we've, we've procured a fair number of 150 to $200 units. Honestly, those hundred dollar tablets were terrible. 
but you know, you start getting 150 to 200, they're actually pretty nice. So we're going to, we're going to go ahead as part of this. And if people want, we're going to go ahead and deploy tablets for them. It's tablets and then in-home Wi-Fi. Those were kind of the two areas that we saw were the problems. So we're going to, we're going to give them a router if they need one for, for free. And then for the hundred dollars, and I'm taking a page out of the PCs for people's guy where I'm going to actually ask the family to contribute $50 towards the price of a tablet. Let's see how that goes, but that's the recommendation I got from them. So the router's free, the internet connection is free, and the tablet's 50 bucks. And we're not asking you for a credit card. We're not asking you for anything. You can sign, you can, you know, you hook up and, and start using it. That's at least where we are today. And what no. about if they don't know how to use it? Well, that's why we went with a tablet, because okay. my hope is that that barrier will be less. Um, this gets into being a real issue for us. We're not really staffed to be trainers, right. but my hope is that in an MDU, there is either a family member or maybe a young you know, neighbor or somebody, you know, we, we, we didn't really want to deploy computers because the, the barrier is much more difficult than say just like an iPad. So we've gone down the iPad route. So phones, iPads, Wi-Fi, gigabit internet in the unit. We think that's as about a good a recipe as we can get. And I've, Travis, you and I talked about this and I've said that I felt like if a local government in an area where you were working wanted to um, pursue digital equity training and stuff like that, um, it seemed to me like you were willing to kind of um, to match that. Uh, but I do feel like your sense is, is that that shouldn't fall on you alone. And I, I think you're right about that. Honestly, there's only, you know, Joanne just said it, there's only so much we can do. So I figure if we can provide the internet connection, the router and a tablet, that's a, we've kind of done our part. I just don't know who's going to do the other part because that's not really crystal clear at this point. Heck, it may, it may end up being me at the end of the day, if this is wildly successful, but right now I'm have this, I have this mythical other person that I don't know who it is. <laughs> that's going to help. I think we so, have, I think we know who it's going to be. It's going to be Chris. So. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yes. Uh, I just, I, I, the more people you can give me to scream at the better that I do. So. Well, and for us, you know, the issues are in our area, you know, probably like a lot of cities is, you know, we've got a large Hispanic population. We've got a large Somali population. We've got a large, you know, Asian population. So, you know, we need native speakers. We need a lot of that. So we, we've engaged the Somali community. We've engaged the Hispanic community to try to get, you know, some younger tech savvy people that can go around and help people get connected. Yeah. And if I can, I mean, I'll just, I'll say like, I feel like I've been very critical of the city of Minneapolis. I feel like the city of Minneapolis feels like its role in this is to say that Travis isn't doing enough, to say that Comcast and, and CenturyLink, now Lumen, aren't doing enough. And, and I can argue about what I think of those companies, but I feel like you know, cities that are making a difference in this space are ones that are anteing up. They're creating a budget. They're creating digital navigators. They're making sure the libraries are staffed up for this. In St. Paul, we have some, some good stuff happening, but like... I don't know if the city's been super involved with it or the county. Um, and so I, you know, I feel like this is a challenge. Um, and, and the EBB is clearly um, 
sort of designed so that someone's going to go out and do that work. And I think a lot of us have been expecting that it is nonprofits, it is cities and counties that are going to have to, to do that work to make sure that people learn about the program and then they can sign up for it. Now, this rolls into something that I want to throw at Joanne again right away, which is um, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, uh, who's been on here multiple times in the in the face of Angela Seifer, who uh, is uh, a friend um, and and someone that I talk to not often enough, but still pretty often about all the great work that they do. They are doing um, a, a webinar soon on how free is not enough because they're doing a webinar series. And this has come up enough times where people have said, we've made internet access free and there's still a substantial number of people that, that don't use it, which gets to the question that Joanne had asked, which is who's going to do the training. Um, Joanne, you were deeply involved in the program in Alabama to provide vouchers, a very flexible voucher program to uh, help uh, deal with the cost of service, as well as in some cases, the cost of hooking up physically. Um, tell us a little bit about what, what, what you had there. And let's talk about this a little bit as to what it takes to make sure uh, that some of these communities are, are connected well. Um, so the you know really short story on a uh, and I don't let me get into the lengthy one. Stop me if I start to lean toward the lengthy version because I could. But the short story is the state of Alabama committed hundred million dollars to connect low income students throughout the state <clears throat> for purposes of dealing with uh, the pandemic and and distance learning during the pandemic. And this was done on an emergency basis, and the program stood up in in a matter of weeks. And, um, and the program was designed to give the families agency and decision-making opportunity. So we contracted with 42 different ISPs, many of them small and local, some of them big and national, but the great majority local Alabama ISPs. So we could access every single network because we we're gonna have to support a lot of kids. And then gave the families custom information and voucher codes. And the information was about which ISPs could serve them where they were located. If there was no ISP who could serve them, we sent them a hotspot and, and told them it may not work at home, but it might work elsewhere. And we wish we could do more in the short time period, but we couldn't. But for the ones who were able to access um, broadband at home, they then had a voucher and they could select the provider of their choice. And if they were already paying for service, then the program just paid their service. So it was new, new folks coming onto the internet for the first time and many who were already buying service, but who were very, stressed during the pandemic. Um, you know, looking back after 10 months of a really sustained engagement there, as well as in other states, I'll, I'll share that I think the set of needs around engagement and outreach and support and access to devices and literacy, but also just helping these families who are the most stressed families in America during a terrible economic and healthcare crisis, helping them to navigate these processes is the critical piece. NDIA is right if they say free is not enough. It, it, is, it takes an enormous amount of effort to make sure that folks who have this opportunity know about it and are able to make use of it. So we are at 60% participation in Alabama before we had run through our budget. We, we're still getting calls five months after we stopped taking on new families every single day our customer service center gets calls from people who would like to join the program and we have to say, we're sorry, but let us tell you about the EBB because here's a federal program. But, but getting to 60% was one of the most monumental efforts that we have ever gone through. And you know, you'd think 
this should have been 100%. It's not that simple. It is very hard to reach many communities that don't speak English as a first language, communities that are extremely stressed, remote. And, and frankly, we've done a whole lot of surveys after the fact to find out what worked in outreach and what didn't. For many people, free meant too good to be true. Somebody's trying to take advantage of me. Quite reasonably, you know, the question of, I, I don't think I want to go down that road. So this is a complex set of issues that we're going to be dealing with for a long time after we get the networks built everywhere. And, um, and that underlying message of for local communities and states, there's a critical function in supporting the community beyond getting the network built. I think that's a, a key message. And I'd like to, well, I'd like well, to see. I, I just got to jump in here, Chris. You know what she just said? No, I wasn't listening. No, what she just said was, <laughs> if EBB runs out, we are going to create a huge amount of mistrust out there, and they're not going to trust the next program to come along. Well, that, that, I mean, that's yeah, just maybe. Dreadful, I mean, the know? thing is, I mean, they're going to be frustrated because by 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 the requirements of the program, they have to be turned off. They can't just suddenly right. start getting a bill. But I think that's this one of the issues. I mean, that that will create frustration. I don't know if it will create as much mistrust from that. But I think what 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 the mistrust comes from to some extent. I mean, I I feel like you know, the, the part of me that, that grew up, you know, more working class, I think it's sort of like um, more of a jerk would say, what's wrong with these people are trying to do something for free. Come on. And like, the answer is, is that people have heard about free things before. And in fact, even like, you know, the, the, the program from charter spectrum in which uh, they're supposed to get a, a good deal for kids that have um, kids are in the free and reduced lunch program, you know, families there found unexpected bills. They found that when they tried to sign up, they were um, that the, the customer service representative, whether deliberately or unintentionally signed them up for a higher tier than they were expecting. So they have concrete experiences in which they've been ripped off by a deal that was too too good to be true. And, and in part, this is a legacy we have to deal with because the FCC has not done its job when it comes to making sure that ISPs are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I say the ISPs, but I mean, we mean the top 10 big ones, not talking about Travis. I don't know. Maybe I am. Travis is mean sometimes. <laughs> we, we try, you know, I cut you off from the next question you were going to ask. No, no, no. I, I rolled right into it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's the thing. And I just, I, 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 I feel like there's this thing where I just feel like, I mean, for years, many of us, and in fact, I think Joanne and, and Doug, you've made this point. People have said, oh, well, the, the issue is actually people aren't interested in it. It's not cost. And we've all said, like everyone that we talk to says it's cost, cost, cost. And, and the, the reality is, is that it was cost is the preliminary barrier. And when you get that out of the way, you find that there are other barriers. But fundamentally, I've always thought that it was me. I mean, the Connect Kentucky model from 12 years ago or whatever it was always upset me. It was the idea that you put a lot of money into training people and getting them excited for Internet access. And then they go back home and they wait and hope that in three years, AT&T builds something to them. That was ridiculous. And so, like, we're doing it in the right order, but we just have more work to do. I'm just, I'm an amazing host because I just end up with no one has anything you, to say. You, you, you didn't ask a question. You made a good point. I don't we have don't, a question. Don't, I'm just having We anger. don't like it when you make a good point. <laughs> so the bulk of this show is, uh, is about, um, I think, what's going on. And let's talk about, to get people's attention back, um, let's talk about scams. So there's money flowing out to communities. And when money flows out to communities, something else happens. And... Um, 
and so, you know, I, Travis, I don't know if you've heard of any of this, and um, but uh, we'll get your reaction in a second to what um, Joanne and Doug are hearing from from communities. Joanne, do you want to go first with uh, with examples of of what's happening for people that are running communities? Sure. So what I'm seeing and certainly hearing from every CIO I speak to at the city and county level is that they are inundated with calls that you know, not a day goes by without not just one, but in some cases, dozens of calls from people trying to sell them, in many cases, some kind of magical um, equipment uh, network solution that will solve all broadband problems. Uh, and all it's going to take is dedicating their American Rescue Plan funds. Um, and I think that you know, there's real reason to be concerned that there's going to be a lot of junk on the market and a lot of false claims about outcomes and what technologies can do and communities that are really doing the right thing and trying to get to the right place are um, just going to be inundated and overwhelmed with uh, exaggerated claims at best. So I hope they will proceed deliberatively and cautiously and um, question you know, any too good to be true promises that they are told by vendors, uh, because this is one time money. It's a you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to address broadband problems at, on a scale that we've never had capital for before in most communities and rushing into something that seems good, but that may not be what is promised. I think there's some real risk around that. Now, I feel like, let me clarify about this. I'm going, to, I'm going to clarify about this. That's what I do. The, there's like there's being wrong in hyping as a vendor, right? There's saying, oh, yes, like 48 nodes per square mile will bring high quality Wi-Fi into everyone's home, right? Like that's an exaggeration. It's, it's not necessarily fraud. You're actually, I think you ran down some of these. Some of these are just like blatantly fraud, right? We are seeing technical performance promises that are infeasible as a technical matter. Physics will not allow for it. Right. And, um, and that is really concerning. And, and then failing to disclose the limitations with regard to propagation, for example, that's pretty darn close to fraud. Like, you know, Promising that Wi-Fi can work in certain ways in a complex and dense urban environment without disclosing that it won't penetrate walls and go inside, it, that feels pretty problematic to me. So I, you know, those are examples of the kinds of things I mean, but most CIOs are going to be equipped to navigate that and to deal with it. I think it's just like the, the enormity and the just how much is going on at one time and the inundation that they are well, they got a lot on their plates anyway in the current moment um, that there's, you know, there's, there's going to be, I'm afraid, some real mistakes made and some blood on the floor before this is all over. See, I'm not worried about the towns that have CIOs. I'm worried about the ones who don't. I had an uncle who for 35 years was the mayor of a town of 900 people, and he was the entire city government, and he's going to get it. And that little town, he, I mean, he's no longer here, but, but you know, He's going to get a check too, and for that little town, and somebody's going to call him up with a solution, and he's probably going to take it because he's going to look around to find somebody like Joanne or I to ask. In today's environment, he's not going to get a hold of us. We're too busy, and so, and I don't know who he's going to find to ask. 
and hopefully he asked the CIO of a bigger town. But, uh, but you know, there's a good chance that a lot of these solutions are going to get in, implemented and just not work. And so they, that's, that certainly starts feeling a lot like fraud. So, uh, you know, my, my, my saying that, you know, is in today's busy environment, if they're calling you, you should hang up the phone. So, you know, you, you should be the one looking for a solution and take your time, not the other way around. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's all I'll take to Travis in a second, but I want to plug um, from the, um, the Chris Mitchell ILSR podcast empire. We have uh, an interview coming out either tomorrow or next week with Doug Dawson, um, Gene Scott, and, um, and Catherine Rice uh, from North Carolina talking about this in depth, this particular issue, giving advice. So encourage people to check that out. It'll be available at North Carolina Broadband Matters. It'll also be a bonus episode in the Community Broadband Bits feed. So um, that's a really good in-depth discussion about that issue alone. Travis, as you're looking for partners, do you call cities? Like, is it you call up cities and you're like, hi, this is Travis. I'd like to talk to the, the city emperor and talk about broadband. How, how does it work that you find partners and think about this? Mm, we usually try to partner with contractors and uh, construction companies, people that will actually do the work, because a lot of cases we're working in the public right away and we find a certain size of town they're super excited when you just show up with an actual solution that you're actually going to deploy versus actually, I had never even heard about this scam until we started talking about it here. You know, the one I was used to was the car warranty one, but I guess, you know, it makes sense that people are calling around trying to fish these dollars. So no, we, we tend to pick our area, find a, a construction partner in the area, then approach the town because I got to imagine these towns get approached all the time with all kinds of harebrained ideas and, and we try to go in with, okay, this is the solution. I take that personally, Travis. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and here, here's a check for the permit. You know, they like that when you actually, when you actually hand them over checked and get started. So I, and maybe I've been approaching this all wrong, but that's just kind of the way we've, we've done it. Now, Travis just made a great point because you got to remember there's two tranches of federal money coming down. One can be used for a whole lot of purposes. So it's not just broadband ideas that are being floated. There's electric grid and water issues and every and street issues. There, people are going to be trying to grab a piece of all of that money. They're, these folks must just be getting pounded with, with these calls. So, yeah. yeah. I think there are some states who see this concern and this risk and who are providing technical support. And I think that could be a really useful function for states yes. to support smaller communities and um, provide some aggregated guidance about what is for real and what is not and, and how you might want to use your funds and not. And, and that's a, you know, a real service. There are also nonprofits that provide that same kind of support and, and small communities should just reach out because I they can't think of one though. <laughs> 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 um, Joanne, I want to I want to dig into the idea of the States doing it. Like, so States are right now, I feel like in many cases they're trying to hire people and they're running to the same crunch you are. I mean, you and Doug are trying to find qualified people that can work with you that don't require three months of training because you don't have three months to train anyone right now. You can't take any of your productive staff and like have them take a whole bunch of new trainees under their wing. States are going to be bringing in people that that don't have a deep background in this. What do you recommend that they do? Like, I'm, so I've just been hired by the state of Delaware, and and I'm a promising person. I have, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a do-gooder resume. Um, what do I do to figure out how to offer the right kind of advice? 
I call Chris Mitchell. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is a problem because, you know, we, we can't forget there's big states and little states. Little states have no staff. When you start talking Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, there's no staff in those states. I mean, there's a, there's a few person broadband office and there's a few people in this and a few people in that. They, they don't have anywhere near the kind of people that could help people with this. You know, not that they don't have the right heart and want to do it. Other states are, some of the states, like North Carolina, we're large enough that I think our broadband office could offer really good advice. So, so I think it's a part of it is a size issue. So, uh, and it's also though, you know, a lot of this, there's still states that don't have a broadband office. I mean, not everybody has even created this position, but the ones who have uh, and who are large enough are a really good resource right now. So I would agree with that. So. The states are learning from each other and they're, they support and benefit each other. And oh, they all know each other. Yeah. So, yep. Credit to NTIA and the Department of Commerce, which has brought the broadband leaders at the state level together for many years so that they are exchanging ideas and best practices and so on. Um, and, and I don't think it necessarily takes enormous resources for the state to help communities. So the state of Georgia, for example, recently did a series of really superb webinars in which they um, provided guidance um, basic technical information, um, business uh, planning information, and so on, just to help some of their smaller communities at least start from a, a base of knowledge. Now, I do think that the states are going to struggle to develop grant-making capabilities in a you know, relatively short timeline, because that takes a lot of work and, and a considerable amount of staffing and expertise um, but this is an important role and the states are engaged in a way they weren't ever before. I mean, just in the past three years, the difference in, in terms of the number of states who are thinking about this and putting meaningful resources into planning, it's dramatically changed. And I would, I would add both Blandon Foundation and the Michigan Moonshot have a lot of resources that they've made available, past webinars and things like that um, can be really good places for people to get up to speed. Um, but I want to I want to have some fun talking about harebrained ideas. So, Travis, <laughs> what, what you know? Let's say that I'm I'm a, I'm the mayor of of a town of fifteen hundred, um, and I'm like, hey, how can I get your attention? You know, like what can I do? I have money from the federal government. I'm not allowed to just give it to you. What can I do to make myself more attractive to you? So I'll give you an example of a project we're doing in Wisconsin. And again, this new influx of money might operate differently, but to, so I'm just saying federal or state dollars in this particular case. So they came to us. It was an underserved area. Um, they were putting up some dollars. Uh, we matched those dollars. Uh, we found a construction outfit that made good sense. And the primary reason we went there is the competition was so poor and kind of the the demographic for us there was a demand you know there were people that wanted the internet service so we started pulling fiber into these communities and got an 85 percent uptake literally day one so it's actually harder to find these communities for us we have to kind of like you know sit on honestly on google earth and try to find them then compare the competition see if there's the right demand is there backhaul to get in and out of that town and, and is the backhaul not from the competition? You know, so let's say we're going to go in and we're going to build into a frontier market and frontier is the only fiber coming in there. No, thanks. Because, you know, magically you're going to have technical problems in the middle of the night, aren't you? 
nobody knows why you're having them and your product just falls apart. So if you're on Frontier, and, and the, you know why you're having them. And the backhaul is going to cost just as much as all the broadband is. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think there's a model pretty much anywhere where we can find good backhaul. We have demand. And even the financing is getting easier to come by. Nowadays, you know, there are there are senior lenders that will lend into projects, especially if there's matching dollars from the community. It's honestly, it's harder to find the communities for us than it is to find. The, I mean, building the fiber network now, it's we have kind of a standard blueprint we're doing everywhere. Um, so I don't know if that well, Travis, answer. what's the zip code in that area? Do you know offhand? Or what's the name of the place? Kenosha, Wisconsin. Sorry, I always say Kenosha, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Just outside Oshkosh. All right. So that's really our only foray outside of the Twin Cities. You know, the Twin Cities we did, we did a lot of detailed analysis, or maybe it's because this is just where we lived, you know, that, you know, one or the other. We did no analysis, by the way. So, so I just, I really wanted to make this point, Travis. So like Oshkosh, I just looked it up on broadband now. You're overbuilding, it sounds like to me, because they have great broadband. They have 100% spectrum. They've got some AT&T symmetrical gigabit fiber. They've got some CenturyLink. Um, so what are you talking about? They don't have great access. He's building one block pass where this cable network stops. <laughs> that's what he's doing, right? So. I don't, you know, if if that's your test, if people have good broadband or not, I need to, you and I need to drink right. chicken wings. So Yes, we do. Yeah. Because according to broadband now, they probably have 11 options for broadband. So, yeah. Yeah. I just I want to make the point because like when you when you watch what's happening in the discussion about the broadband infrastructure bill, there's this sense that in America you have places that are served and we don't have to worry about and places that are unserved. And these might be towns, entire towns that need municipal broadband options. Um, I mean, so I've been trying to like we're trying to figure out how to help try to resolve some of this. I and mean, that's my impression of what's happening in DC is that they literally don't have a sense. I mean, there's people there who do, but like a lot of the senators and the representatives, they don't really have a sense of where the problem is and what it actually is in, in a lot of areas. Well, I would just tell you this. The only place we will not overbuild is if there's already a fiber network there, right? Any other network that's there, magical 9g or magical <laughs> satellite flying overhead or some magic uh new coax we'll build we'll overbuild all that because we'll we'll crush them if there's a, you know if there's verizon at&t fios google you just go to the next town right so what about uh towns that would like to build conduit because it struck me that although um, as Travis has, has told me on multiple occasions, conduit prices are up and harder to get, um, just like everything else that goes into making these networks. It has seemed to me that you could um, avoid making some of the more difficult decisions, such as who's going to operate the network, who's going to pay for the network. Um, if you have money and you have a deadline to use it, you may have a sense of where you want to build it. Maybe it makes sense to focus on getting conduit in that ground and punting on some of these decisions. I like that idea as long as, I mean, you got to get an engineer and you still got to do it right. Cause now you're talking about putting conduit in where you're going to have to bore it. It's, it's going to be dreadful. You're still spending most of the money that it takes to build a fiber network. Right. So you're, you know, so, but at least you're not making any commitments to be an ISP. And if you build the conduit and you do it right and you put the handholds in the right place, you can get Travis to come in and pull fiber into it. So, you know, so you're absolutely right. That That's not a bad approach. 
but if you build it wrong, nobody's going to come there. So, I mean, that's the other, that's the flip side of that. So. And can I just mention that, that w there's been this reoccurring. I want to come back to Joanne right after that. Yeah, point yeah. I, I, I kind of butted in front of Joanne, but I, there's this reoccurring theme here where these, these cities talk about whenever we do road construction, throw fiber <laughs> in the ground. I've never understood that because I think they do the roads every 25 or 50 years. Right. 86 in St. Paul. Yeah, we need we need to have a contiguous conduit. Okay, sorry, Joanne. That's where I wanted to say. Yeah, no problem. I am good with being interrupted, so not a problem. I, my comment was that if a city does what we were just talking about a minute ago, it, they also have a 100-year asset. And I think that's another thing to think about, like that conduit asset is going to pay off long beyond all of our lifetimes. Yep. So my thought, and, and this is something, Travis, I know that you're 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 a super boring guy. You're boring every day. Um, is it the same thing to like, um, is it roughly the same cost to put in like one of these big like conduits as it is to do like one of the, the Duraline, like really nifty multicolored, like six different conduits, all different shapes. So you have like different shapes and sizes. It strikes me if you're going to this effort, you don't want to just, you know, ultimately end up with one pipe that, may be difficult to have multiple providers use or to have yourself use and things like that. What's the best practice for that? Well, it, it, like for us, we'll use a multi-duct that you've talked about, like a six-way multi-duct, and then we'll put a couple two inches in simultaneously to give us maximum flexibility. What does that mean? So, okay, so basically you have a duct that has little six little tiny ducts inside That's of it. That's what I got. And then two other two-inch ducts right next to it. And then we do them different color. Now we had a we had a city build our spec and they made them all the same color. So now we didn't know what the heck. You know. <laughs> so, anyways, if you put them, if you put it in right, you have the different ducts, then you can attract anybody to come in and run the fiber because you know you're spot on. I tell people this, I even tell the bank this all the time. We're not building a fiber network, we're building a duct bank. Right. Because when when the cable goes bad. We're going to pull it out of the ground and put a new cable in whatever the new neutron cable is that comes next after fiber and we're back in business. Yeah, we want the roads. That's what we want. We're not necessarily worried about what's in it. I've, I've liked the model uh, that uh, will be. Travis, did you listen to my podcast yesterday? The new one? Yeah. The Clear Networks guys. Oh, you've already listened to that one. The, the Colorado guys. Oh, yeah, I like those guys. Yeah, they're out in the mountains there. Yeah. So in, the, in that case, um, they got money from cities. It was CARES Act money. And basically the, the cities and the counties were paying ahead and they built infrastructure and then they committed to multiple years of, of, low, of, of a certain cost service for certain people. One of the things that I thought was interesting was that they, they owned the fiber, but then they were giving a number of strands back to the community. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about that. Um, from, you know, Doug and Joanne's perspective, like, does it make sense if you're like kind of committing to someone, if you don't feel like you want to take on the management of building either an open access system or a duct system, if you have a provider and you just want to say, look, we'll fund this and we'll like find a way to give it to you. It's not clear with this money under these rules, you can do that. But are you covered enough for like future interests if you're getting a certain number of fibers back? State of Maine took a very different approach and it's not, it's, it's a law that's now been introduced the governor is blessed. It's, it's been it's been blessed by both houses. hasn't passed yet, but when the state takes all of this coming down the hill federal money, the state is going to take a piece of every one of these projects to use for all those other purposes. They're like, fine, you're building this route to get out to this neighborhood to do last mile, 
but you know, five years from now, we want to be able to use that for smart grid or, you know, whatever. Because there, over the over a hundred years, there's going to be twenty other uses for that exact same route. And so the states actually, they're going to, I think they call it a fiber bank. They're creating a fiber bank that, you know, a conduit bank that the state can can come along. And of course, they're just going to pass it on at at cost to the next guy who wants to use it. But you know, we don't. They don't want their roads to be bored over and over and over again. And so. So they're, they're hoping out of even the money that's going to be spent in the next three years here with these grants that that they're getting a longer term state asset. It's harder for a trap for Travis or somebody to do that. This particular pile of money would be hard for an ISP to somehow give back. It sounds hard, but it's harder to give to the government than you think. <laughs> it can be done, but it, there's a little bit of a challenge there. So, yeah. That main strategy is really fascinating. And I think yeah. It's a statewide and really insightful mm -hmm. um, statewide variation on what we see a lot, of, a lot of local communities doing, which is I've, I've got this federal money. It's to build infrastructure. I don't want to be in the internet business. I want to empower a competitor to come in here and build an operating network. And I'm going to keep 12 count fiber that they'll maintain for me so I don't have costs on it. And um, that 12 count or 24, whatever it is that that community thinks they need, can support whatever public uses they have in the long term. What I think is much harder is if it's non-public uses. So if it's to leaving open the potential to commercialize that fiber changes everything about the business considerations for the ISP. Um, but most communities just want it for their internal needs and operations, including the ones, to Doug's point, that they haven't anticipated yet, but that will emerge at some point in the future. And, and the kinds of things that they might want to try to accomplish if they were to retain fiber for commercial use, if they wanted to create competition in order to impact pricing or to impact other kinds of factors, they can potentially do through the contract with the entity that they are enabling to build and operate this fiber now, right? They can get certain kinds of promises because they're bringing the capital to the table and those can be enforceable. Actually, those must be enforceable promises, right? Then enforceable over the long run, no matter who owns the company and what changes over time. Um, but it's, I think we're gonna see an awful lot of that sort of thing. And, and that's a very reasonable outcome for a community. Well, you can do it wrong. And I don't, maybe Joanne will remember, but in the last year, I saw a municipal RFP where they wanted somebody to come in, build the fiber network, and then give the rest some of their pairs for open access. So they were they wanted somebody who was going to bring in their own competition. <laughs> of course, nobody nobody responded to it very rightfully. Well, but in the case of Colorado, Colorado, that's that's what yeah. they do because they yeah. they feel like they're bold, and I think they're right. I mean, we're going to talk about this more next week. Connect this next week is going to involve some of the ISPs from Utopia and. And I think that what you just said, Doug, it makes sense intuitively, but fundamentally, if you come in and you do a good job and you're the first mover, you're golden as long as you don't screw up. There's just people don't move once they're happy is my sense. And so I feel like it's a gamble, maybe more of a gamble, but I think that's fine. I think, you know, I think if Travis like decided to suddenly like, for some reason, if he, if I hit him in the head and like um, in, in, in while he was vulnerable, convinced him that he should like lease a lot of his fiber to competitors, I don't think he'd see a significant drain in market share, uh, even if others were available um, at a very low cost. Mm, 
Mm, I don't know. Mm, I don't know about that. Because mm. what if somebody comes in with that cheap fiber and it starts offering $30 gigabit? They can kill them. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Oh. I mean, this is what we see like on open access networks. People don't move to just save a few bucks. Now, maybe, maybe if it's half price, maybe they would. But there's a lot of people for whom they're just like, I'm done. And I mean, we see this in the, in the Texas electrical grid too. Like people don't want a comparison shop. People want something that works. And if they get a rate where they're like, I'm okay with this rate, then they stick with it and they but move you on. You got to remember life. these networks are for a long time. Even if it just slowly fades away, it could fade away. So, yeah. That, I think that is the critical thing, Chris, is you're, if you're a community and you're trying to develop some kind of a collaboration with a private entity, that private entity is thinking in long-term ways and having mm -hmm. certainty is something they absolutely need. And if there is uncertainty, like, well, who knows what open access, maybe I know what it looks like for the next three years, but I don't know what it looks like for the next 30. Right. And, and it's going to compromise my ability as a company to go out and raise capital or to sell my company, or there's so many complications of it. I think for a company, it, it comes with uncertainty that has a cost, and that means it's going to have a cost for the community. So they better be sure that they're getting enormous value in return for it because they're it's going to limit the number of potential partners who are out there for them. Particularly if they make the first guy pay for it all. I mean, that's just really asking that guy to do a lot. <laughs> so I, 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 Travis, hold on that second for that thought for one second. One of the things I want to note, one of the reasons we're in this is because Maine decided that not Maine itself, but like in Maine, they built the three ring binder with BTOP money. And there was a public private consortium in which the incumbent ILEC, the, the, the incumbent telephone company, fought very hard to even try to delegitimize it because of one public entity of the school system. And it was, sent, it was a sense that it was this, this three-ring binder that would be available to, on a neutral terms, provide middle. It got sold. And the new company I'm hearing um, may not be interested in even adhering to the open access restrictions. And, um, and no one up there really wants to necessarily raise a fuss because they have to work with these people. And so I just want to make the note, like, yes, this is a 100-year asset. And we shouldn't screw around with, like, building structures that can just be so easily privatized and have programs in which we pretend that it is open access when we have allocated $0 for enforcement. And when NTIA, despite the, the well wishes and the, the, the fact that people care a lot about getting that done, they're not structurally able to go out and necessarily enforce these conditions. So as we're looking at a new new programs, we need to keep this in mind as we look at the examples just after 10 years. Well, this is great because we've now gotten Chris's speech for the episode. So that's out of the way now. So. <laughs> I only get one? Yeah, that was it. You're done. So. Travis, you had a point before I oh, went off I, on that I railroad spur. I was trying to imagine the conversation at my bank going, okay, so I need to borrow money to build this network and put my competition in business. I'm just kind of curious how that would actually go down, right? That right. But that's what the that's what the Colorado guys are doing, and they seem to be doing well. Well, hold on, but how many no. on a small scale? You know, if you want to hook sure. up, if you want to hook up a lot of people, and you need a lot of capital. So yeah, let's be clear then. I mean, like it, it, it is a different experience in a bunch of small towns than it is in if you're going to build in Chicago. I will yeah. totally grant you that. Yeah, if if somebody wants to do an open access network in any NFL city in town here and build it all. I'll be the second ISP. <laughs> Unless it's Google. <laughs> Unless it's Google, then I don't want anything to do with it. We have a question. We have a question from a long time, um, um, a person who's been ag active in open access. We have um, an audience. This is awesome. We, we do. We um, I've tried to drive them away, but it's I've failed. Um, 
And the question is whether you can speak, Joanne, to long-term infrastructure approach, which I think involves more of the planning versus the fact that we have a political urgency, people need broadband tomorrow. How do we balance those sorts of things? Um, I think acting with haste is not a way to get anybody broadband tomorrow or even next year. Honestly, like this is something particularly if we're talking about building the right thing and building it well, it's something that will last through our kids' lifetimes take the time to do it right. I know there's urgency. I know this feels like an emergency at the local level. I hear this from communities and stakeholders, co-ops all the time. And, um, and because of that urgency, I would say, take a year and, and do it right. It, and it may take less than a year. It depends on what you're doing. I'm talking about the planning and negotiation phase. It might be six months, maybe four months, might be a year. It could be longer than that, but um, do it rigorously and and protect your community and and meet your needs in the long run because it, it is too consequential to jump into. Oh, and with the supply chain issues we currently have, you're not going to go fast anyhow, even if you want to. Nobody's going to build a fast solution right now if it's not oh. already if it's not already shovel ready. It's not going to happen. So. Are we going to see supply chains getting unkinked in a few, like in 18 months? Are we going to be in a better position or are we just going to be in a worse position? If Verizon really builds fiber past 25 million homes, fiber is going to be short for four or five years. It takes that long to spin up new factories? Yeah, it takes six to seven years to spin up one new factory. Yes, that's not an easy thing to build. I guess that's I shouldn't a, say spin a, up then. That's a multi-billion dollar <laughs> investment for a fiber factory. Yeah, that's not little money, so... Travis, I mean, your markets accommodate, they expand. I have a certain amount of trust in markets that they will accommodate increased need for materials. Um, but there, there are labor issues where there have to be lots of different entities working to address that. Um, that, that in the current moment feels like an amazing opportunity, for example, for community colleges to be training um, and so on. Um, it, it, it's just going to take time, but the, the market will expand to address the needs. Now, some of the goofy supply chain stuff's going to clean up. We're going to get chips back. I mean, right now, chips are stopping lots of things. They'll figure out some of these pieces, but the whole thing is going to be limping for a long time. So, yeah. I think the chip shortage comes from um, uh, the joke would have been funny if I could remember his name. That was awful. Travis, do you have any harebrained ideas that you want to run by um, uh, Doug and Joanne? How come he only use, gets questions with the word harebrained? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I think I describe myself that way. I'm, just, I'm actually super impressed. Joanne comes on the show. We have our very first question. I mean, that's just like, oh, yeah. we've had questions before. Oh, you. <laughs> I just haven't. I've taken credit for them. I've pretended they were my questions. This time I just made it clear it came from someone else. Got it. No, you know, I we're just kind of, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. We're, we're trying to hook up as many people as we can. As, as you can imagine, the uh, the demand has been through the roof. Uh, we're trying to come up with some creative ideas about how we can help people. I never thought it'd be this hard to help people, to be honest with you. Um, even giving away free internet has been a challenge for us. Um, and so we're, we're just going to continue. I'm not going to let it stop us. Um, we've had some good luck with like foundations like high school foundations have got us some real inroads with some people so we're starting to make some differences there 
this EBB thing, it's a temporary solution, but it'll help with a little bit of finance, you know, a little bit of capital to get people going. And, um, you know, maybe there's even some opportunities with some of these dollars that are coming down from a federal level that we might be able to get into some of these uh, uh, multi-dwelling units that we have real need and help solve it. So we'll, we'll see who from the government wants to step up and actually do something versus, I hate to say, talk about it all the time. And that's not a harebrained idea. Serving MDUs is one of the fastest solutions to get yeah. this done. So that, yeah, that gets a lot of people with one spending. That's a great idea. So. Yeah, and we've got a, we've got a great solution for it, and it's easy to deploy. It's relatively inexpensive, and we can get a lot of people deployed quickly. And actually, it's easier to find that kind of labor to help deploy do low voltage work than it is to do underground work. So we could knock off a whole bunch of apartment buildings very quickly. How do you deal with that? I mean, this is one of the issues that the, the, the housing agencies themselves really struggle with because just drilling through a wall that was built 50 years ago is, is, a, is a major hazard. I mean, um, I'm, de- I'm guessing that in Minneapolis, you're dealing with buildings that are anywhere from, from zero to 100 years old. What's your standard? How do you keep it? How do you make it so affordable? Yeah, so we have a couple of different approaches. So the first approach is, can you run cables down the hallway, like in a, in a crown molding type configuration, that's one. Can you run fiber optic cables, which are literally about the size of a pencil down, down, the, um, down the hallway? Uh, can you x-ray the walls and just drill through? So it really, you're, you are right. It, it really depends on the age and era of the building, but it, it can all be done. Uh, I think I, it's actually more difficult to run the gauntlet of who owns the building who has authority to make a yes, no decision, who has the authority to, to, to notify all the tenants that actually installing the cables and making the internet work is the easy part. The politics are hard and, you know, cause I'm not a very good politician, I guess, but th- that's the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> there's a question from the chat. This will probably be our last question from the chat. I'm going to pretend that there's like all these questions that I'm trying to, to <laughs> wave filtering through, through them, huh? man. Um, we um, there's a question about water utilities, and I think this is particularly relevant now. I mean, there's this talk about making sure that we're ripping out all of the lead pipes and things like that. Uh, I can only think of one example where a water utility has even been involved, and it was as a partner. But what what is is there promise for getting water utilities more involved? A lot of cities have them. Uh, what's the kind of pro con of getting them involved? What I see is because I believe a lot of the federal money will end up going to fix water. If you're going to dig, the because there you have to dig the streets up. If they're going to dig the streets up, that is an opportunity to get fiber in if they do it correctly. But it's got to be coordinated. And if, and if the guys who've got the water grant don't think of that, it'll be closed back up before you know it. So, so there is a chance to, to do that right. And that would be a really cheap toss in. And, and, and if cities are smart, they will, because there's going to be so many different little piles of grant money, you know, they can get it all paid for if they do it smartly here. But uh, so there, there is going to be a lot of water pipes rebuilt. It's not just lead pipes, by the way. My, my town still has oak wood pipes from the reservoir. Our major water supply pipes are made out of oak. <laughs> and it's a little scary because they can collapse and we run out of water. So, yeah. So that's on the list as well. So, Any, any thoughts on water utilities, Joanne? Um. Seems like the same kind of opportunity. I totally agree that if you're doing that, you can be placing conduit fiber at the same time. And I will say 
we need to do a whole lot of water work as a nation. I a lot more than is funded so far. So this is very timely. Sometimes in demand, we think we are the only infrastructure, but um, that's one where the, uh, the attention we should be paying is a lot higher than we have been. As bad as electric grids are, water grids are way worse. They are terrible shape. Yeah. Yeah, and in some places it's, um, it's uh, <laughs> remarkably expensive when you're losing half of your water. Right. Travis, do you want to do you want to fill us in on how enthusiastic you are about working around other people's schedules when the streets are open? Well, it's 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 very challenging, and and I, and I you know I'm sympathetic to like the street and water people and the electric because there's only one person. When it gets into the communications group, there's like nine of us. So so you've got okay if you're going to redo a street. Yeah, like we did downtown Minneapolis. I don't know. There was six different companies in the communication bucket, but there's only one power person, one, you know, and we're always, we don't like dealing with each other. So, you know, we're like the infighting of all the kids over here. And I think we're kind of an annoyance to the, the people that are doing the construction, quite frankly, but it, um, so we're always kind of left to the end. For instance, we're doing a project in Minneapolis right now we got the Mother's Day slot. So we have to be in there Friday at, <laughs> at, at, at five o'clock at night and we have to be out Monday morning, right? Okay, well, guess what? My cost to do this project went up like four times. But so I actually find it easier to come in after they're done, um, before the concrete is poured, than trying to coordinate with them, to be honest with you. It's, we it's, now have a new analogy, though, because telecom guys are the at, at the kids' table at Thanksgiving. So. Well, we are, yeah, we are, and, 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 we're, all, and, and we're all bickering. Right. So it sounds. I mean, again, it sounds great. Well, the streets open. Let's go ahead and throw pipe in. Well, it's not really the way it works, you know. Again, I always go back to that Rodney Dangerfield back to school. You know, that's not the way it really works in the real world. It sounds good <laughs> in academia, but when you're actually digging in the streets and we're all fighting with each other to get our pipe in the ground before the concrete gets overlaid, that's not how it really works. Smaller towns would be a lot easier, though. You know, I love small towns, by the right. way. Yeah, this is the last NFL <laughs> city I'm doing. I'm going all small towns from now on. Well, St. Paul is is a very small town. It's they where? St. Paul. It's, Never heard it's of it. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> 2,000 feet per permit. They're yeah. genius. That's, that's a good one. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> It is what it is. <laughs> and I'm sure that's not the last thing we'll find, which oh, is uh, difficult. Tomorrow, I guarantee you. Yeah. You have already said that. Like um, One of your, your people has said that um, she will not work in St. Paul anymore like please can we not do st paul because again each city if, if one thing is if the cities could come with a universal permitting process boy would that be nice sure and if the railroads could too and you know how many different government entities need to own the roads i mean it's unbelievable you're just go down you go down you go down one mile of fiber and you've gone past eight different government entities to get from one end to the other and some you've never even heard of before so it's 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 quite a challenge well, I think it's time to to draw to a close. I want to note that we'll be back in one week. I think we're starting maybe a half hour earlier. Um, we're going to be talking um, with some folks from uh, Utopia 
in terms of what it's like to be a service provider on there. We have a, a service provider that is a CLEC. We have one that is an ILEC. And, um, and Travis will be asking all kinds of questions about um, why in the heck would he ever want to do something like that as we explore what life is like on an open access network like that. I want to note that we finally got Joanne on here and we got two questions from the crowd. So this, yeah, is, this is a good trend that we're on here. Joanne's so, showing off, I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, I, I think people are just more, um, they feel more confident with me running all the technical details of the show because <laughs> yeah. I exude such confidence. <laughs> Joanne, thank you very much. Do you have any, any closing comments, any advice that we haven't gotten to for the cities that are getting this money and, and desperate? No, I think um, I think we covered it. Um, but thank you, guys. Nice to join you. It was not what I expected. So. <laughs> I, hope that's, I hope that's good. Doug, what was this? The small, the kids' table at Thanksgiving. This is the kids' table. Yeah, yeah that's so I can go back to the adults. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm going to work on an in-person setup for when we can uh, have people in town, and uh, there we'll have to have a lot of napkins for all of the uh, the wings uh, right. that we'll be consuming. Uh, Doug, any last thoughts? Yeah, really, Joanne actually said it during the call. Take your time. This money feels like it's going to be in a hurry, but a lot of this money is going to have three years to spend, and they'll probably extend it. Take your time and do it right, because if you rush here, you're going to really be sorry. So Yeah, let me just let me say, I want Joanne and, and Doug, let me see if I can get you to nod as vigorously as possible, because I think this will resonate with you. I'm now I've been in this space long enough that I see places in which like, eight or nine years ago, I was like, oh, no, don't do that. That's not going to work out well. It's just, it's not going to solve your problems. And then now I see them coming out with new RFPs that are a bit more sensible. And, um, and I, I do feel like places that have just tried to like rush it and get it done quickly, they actually, they don't get anything done faster. They just end up, you know, wasting more time and getting more frustrated. Yes. <laughs> you just wanted a head nod. So. <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm also going to take the liberty of doing more than just nodding. It, it is more complex than I got a model. I can copy my neighbor's right. model. I can grab somebody else's RFP. And, and it starts with understanding where does the city fit in? Like, how do the economics of this thing work? What does the city bring to the table? And what is the city not in a position to get? To your point, Chris, about people who put out RFPs that were entirely unrealistic and ignored the economics and the reality of the world. But, um, but where does the city have some leverage and where does it have opportunity to make this better? And, and really understanding that and nailing that down and then building strategically and rigorously, like that is, uh, you know, it, it's just a basic planning function of government and we do it in everything else and we should do it in this space as well. It's how we build curbs. It's how we build curbs. If we thought about building fiber the same way that we civil engineer curbs, we'd be just fine. So, yep. Travis, let me ask you with a, let me leave you with a custom question, which is totally leading. Are you willing to like sort of give up more or be more generous for cities that are able to give you certainty in terms of like permitting and um, in just other kinds of things? Like what I'm trying to get at is, it seems like so much of your life is trying to figure out how to use your crews effectively. And when you don't know where you can work at a certain time, it just seems like that's a major hassle. 
Well, it's an interesting point. So we're working on our 2024 build season right now. And, and the very first thing you do is you engage with the permitting department in these towns of how do you operate? How do you work? How do we work within your community? Because literally a hundred yards over there, it's different than what it is here. And you also have to remember, most of these city staff have never had a project where you're going to run conduit up and down every single street. You're going to hook up 50 to 80% of the homes in a three to four year period. I mean, they, they do one-off permits for fixing Joanne's gas line and, you know, Doug's water pipe broke. I mean, that's what they're used to doing. So when you come in and you unload on them that you want to overbuild an entire city, I'm telling you, I've seen it at least a half a dozen times, the anxiety in their eyes of like, oh, crap. Yeah, they haven't seen that since the 80s. Well, yeah, and, and most of that stuff, at least around here, was all aerial. So I like to at least give a good year of kind of warming them up to the idea before I attack them with a, with a whole bunch of permits. Um, but, you know, I, I think at one interesting point with all this, these dollars is, is if a town, please do fiber, don't fall for the wireless stuff, please. if I can beg, put a good conduit system in, don't direct barrier fiber, put in fiber down, up and down your streets, hook everybody up. You will not be disappointed. I've, I battled wireless for 20 years and it's a, it's 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 a miserable solution compared by to battling it you mean you've used it you've deployed it, it right you sold it yeah. 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 and i have to i've had two wireless companies and it's not yeah. I, I can't you know i'm 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 a drunk advocate on fiber let's put it that way so yep yep thank you all thank you uh listeners and viewers many of you will be viewing us in the future and uh like a good wine i believe our wisdom will just uh, get better with time so i hope that that's true <laughs> well done chris well done Thank you, guys. Um, I have to figure out how to turn this off. (laughs) Flashing red one. (laughs) It is red. All right. That was that was really fun. Um, We might still be on YouTube, though. Just be just be wary that this might still be live. I have turned off. I have turned it off in both places. And actually, I was still recording it, but I've now stopped.